Okay, let's get into the word. Um, do you have it? Sweet. Thank you. We're going to start, um, I, I don't, I'm so careful to call it a series because I'm so bad at finishing series. Um, but I'm going to say this, for the next little while, we're going to be teaching out of the book of Romans. So I've called this the gospel that changed everything. We're going to be really just pulling scriptures out of Romans, teaching around the letter of Romans. Uh, and uh, I've called it an encounter with the book of Romans. That's what I'm praying. So uh, if you are thinking about a Bible study, we're not going to go line by line, verse by verse, but we're going to keep pulling out themes out of the book of Romans that Paul taught. Um, and the reason we're doing this, I really believe we'll probably do this all the way up till the 1040 conference and maybe a little bit after that. Um, but the reason we're doing this is I believe right now more than ever, we need a solid, firm foundation of the true, pure, and potent gospel of grace. And there is a gospel that Paul preached that he was actually very aggressive about protecting. And, and what I mean by this is <laughs> he's quite aggressive in, in, I think it's Galatians, where he says, if you, if you preach anything other than this gospel, if you preach legalism, actually I pray that you'd castrate yourselves. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's in your Bible. Like that's pretty explicit, right? So he's like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just me, but like that's, that's the biggest insult. It's like, if you preach this thing, I wish you'd just, just cut it off. And so Paul was really passionate about something, he was really, really intentional about protecting the purity of the gospel, and there's a reason why. See, we have to understand this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the finished work of the cross, it is so potent, it is so uh, incredible in, in, in its fullness that it changed everything. And if we as the church allow ourselves to get pulled to different doctrines, different beliefs, uh, legalism, a, a, a um, mixed cocktail of law and grace, which is probably the worst of them all. Uh, if, we, if we get distracted and pulled into different doctrine, different ideas, we are not going to see the fullness of what Jesus has paid for in our lives. And what it's producing is a church that's not just weak, because God can use weak things, but it's producing a church that has a lot to say, has a lot of opinions, and it's self-righteous in its stance, and it's missing the substance of the love of God, which is the power of the gospel. And so I, I look, I'm reading my Bible, I'm reading Romans, and I'm going, Paul was fierce about making sure that what people knew he was preaching was the pure gospel of Jesus. And, and Romans is this book where Paul didn't start the church in Rome. Uh, he, he, he knew that the, the, there was already believers there. There's different theories on who started it. Some say Aquila and what's it? Uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla and Priscilla and cool people. Some say it was them. Some say no. When they got there, there was already believers. Some say that there were Roman believers at Pentecost who ended up going back and starting churches. And anyway, uh, most historians will say this letter was written to somewhere between six and ten house churches in Rome, which just makes it more personal when you know the context of what you're reading. Like, can you imagine Paul's writing this letter to six to ten house churches in Rome? where he's never been, he doesn't know this church, but he really wants to go there. And he actually writes in chapter one, I'm excited, I want to come to you so that I could actually bring some sort of spiritual gift to you. And then he says this, strengthen and establish you and mutually we'll be blessed by one another. Paul has a really beautiful understanding of the church. He's got this longing. He's like, I've been working from Jerusalem to Illyricum. I, I, I've been in, in modern day Turkey and all these different, and Greece and, and working in this area, but I long to get to Rome because I hear of what God's doing there. 
And so when we study the context of this book, Paul didn't start this church, but he's longing to go. He's longing to meet them. And he's actually quite cheeky. I love Paul. He actually writes to them and he goes, and you're going to help me on my way to Spain. And so Paul's going, the ends of the earth as we know it is Spain. Like that's as far as you can go. So I'm so excited because you're kind of halfway there. So when I get to you, I'm so grateful that I can expect you to financially help me on my way to Spain. Like Paul is so competent in the gospel that he's preaching, living, and demonstrating that he's like this you want in on. That's not arrogance. It's a competence that, listen, if you're the church of Jesus Christ, you want in on this thing. It's called the Great Commission. To the ends of the earth. I'm going to preach the gospel to Spain. You want in on that. That's Paul. It's like us going, hey, listen, we're sending Jason and Yancey to preach the gospel in Turkey. You want in on that. Anyway, so this book is Paul's letter to the Romans. And, and what happened, just to give you some context, there was a, a season of time where the emperor uh, banished all Jews from Rome. And so for five years, no Jews were allowed in Rome. And when the Jews came back after these five years, when they were allowed back in, um, the church was divided. Because for five years, the church was just Gentile. The Jews came back in and suddenly you had these arguments around circumcision and around, uh, you know, should we eat kosher or not kosher? And what, what's okay, what's not okay? And, and these things began, began to come in. And so Paul's writing to a church that's divided and trying to find their feet again. You with me? Romans is the most clear statement of what Paul believes in the Bible. It is basically his statement of theology. He's like, this is the gospel I preach. This is the gospel I believe. This is the gospel that should be preached in every church. And God honors this so much that it's in our Bible. This letter that was written to a church in a city carries the purity and potency of the gospel that God's given it to us to anchor us and to keep us grounded in truth. And so I want to say to you, I don't think there is a, aside from the words of Jesus, I don't think there's a better book in the Bible to read, to study and understand the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would say this as a bold statement, aside from Jesus, I think Paul had the greatest revelation of the gospel. And, and what blows my mind about this is that he is the, the strangest vessel for that to come from because he was the one killing the Christians. He was the murderer. He was the one who was persecuting them and attacking them. And then God meets him on the road to Damascus. And everything changes. And Paul actually writes and he explains when he spent time in the wilderness, he said, hey, man didn't preach this gospel to me. Jesus himself preached it to me. In other words, Paul's life had been so turned upside down. And can I just say this? God is so committed to his church that he'll preach the gospel to you if, if no one else will. It's happening right now in the Middle East. Hundreds of thousands are having dreams and visions. I have met uh, a man myself who quoted John chapter 1 to me without ever having a Bible. He was told it in a dream. So Jesus is just, he's going to do it. And I want to say this, be very careful that our Western context and the Western world that we live in isn't dulling us down to such a place that we don't even expect the supernatural in our lives anymore. That we've become so consumed with material things, we've become so consumed with settling for the little things like a salary, that we miss an opportunity for the supernatural God to be in us supernatural so we can be a supernatural people. Right now, Jesus is building his church across the nations. He's doing it. And he's looking for his bride to co-labor with him, but he's going to do it regardless. Because he can take one life and save hundreds of thousands, 
and he can take one life that saves the one who saves the hundreds of thousands. And to him, it's the same. He's doing it. And he could come down in all his glory, reveal himself to the earth, and just say, hey, I'm the one, everybody bow, and it will be done. But he doesn't do it like that. He comes low through his people, through his bride, and says, we're going to actually turn the world upside down from bottom up. And so I want you to understand something. We see the gospel birthed. I'm just giving you a bit of an introduction and context before we get to this. At Pentecost, the church is birthed. 3,000 people get saved in a day. The next gathering, 5,000 people get saved. So there's this crazy, wild birth of the church. 8,000 people, boom. And then we start to see over those years, for about somewhere around 10 years, they never left Jerusalem. The church actually got quite content. And so some say actually within six months, it grew to about 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem. Some say it was 100,000 within the first couple of years. Anyway, that happens. So Christianity starts out, and it's, that's amazing, There's a little bit of growth, but it's still not this huge movement. By 300 AD, more than 10% of the population in the Roman Empire are Christian. We're talking about a movement that started to spread like wildfire that the, the governments of the day couldn't control it and started fearing it. So you have emperors freaking out, and this, is, this excites me. In the beginning, you've got emperors freaking out, killing Christians, putting them on poles, lighting them on fire while they're alive, using them as lampstands, throwing them into the Colosseum and letting lions eat them in front of hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands of people. Like, the most intense persecution, and we've read these stories, and we see all the leaders of the church are being killed and martyred and beheaded, and, and we, we see that it's almost like this bloodbath of persecution. Yet, 300 years, and suddenly the emperor of Rome is Christian. There's something about the gospel that changes everything. And there's something about one little life yielded to the fullness of the gospel that Jesus lived and Paul preached that will change everything about not only our lives, but our world. And the reason I think, I've been wrestling with this, I think the reason we're not seeing the impact the church should have is because we're not preaching the pure message. If we're emphasizing the thing that God isn't emphasizing, doesn't that make sense as to why we aren't seeing the fruit we want to see? When we return to what Jesus does emphasize and we begin to preach what he longs for, what he desires, what he's given himself for, do you not think he backs that with all of heaven? And so we sang this, this thing today, the presence of God commissions us. I, I would dare say this, if, if, we're not, if, we, if we know Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, we don't feel commissioned, maybe we should question who we're encountering. Because I think the danger with a, 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 a polluted message of the gospel that's being preached is that we start to think we're encountering God, but we're encountering a God in our own image. Meaning I have already set multiple filters through which I hear you. I have no landing strip for you to say anything that will cost me, anything that maybe will adjust me. And so we get stuck here because we've, we've got a preconceived idea of what I'm okay to receive and what I'm okay to believe because it keeps me in a place that I want to be in, which is control. And, I, and dare I say this, the grace of God is so wild 
And we think that if we preach it in fullness, it just makes everything okay because you have control, you can do whatever you want with your life. It's the opposite. The fullness of the grace of God brings you to a place of abandonment because you can only be dependent on Him. And so His leadership becomes perfect. You become sold out, abandoned, surrendered, given, yielded to Him because of grace. Let me say this. The law never produced surrender in a man. The law produces offense. The law produces offense even in our own hearts because we're offended at ourselves that we can't do what we said we would do. Can I break some things off of us today? I don't care what the world is saying to you. It doesn't matter what you set your mind to. You can't do anything you want. You can do anything you set your mind to. No, you can't. You can be anything you want to be. Nope, no, you can't. No, you can't. And the world, this is the message of the world. You can be anything you want to be. That's why we've got guys trying to be girls and girls trying to be guys. Because I can be anything I want to be. No, you can't. If I want to be a multimillionaire, I can be a multimillionaire. It's all about working hard. Nope. Well, I, that's my story. No, it's not. Your story is this. God gave you grace to actually breathe the oxygen you're breathing, gave you a brain to actually... Everything you did that you think you did was, had nothing to do with you because today he could go, nope, you can't have that. If you have it, it's because he trusted you to have it. We have to break off self-righteousness and the self thing of, I can do whatever I want to do and I can be who I want to be and if I just work hard, I can achieve anything. No, you can't. We're broken. Humanity is finished and broken and, and over. There's nothing that we can achieve in our own strength. No. Let's smash it right between the eyes. Paul hits it. Chapter one, two, three. He's like, let me talk to you about sin. All have fallen short. Thank God there's chapter four, five, six, seven, eight. Because if we just had the first three chapters, it'd be like, we're doomed. Because Paul's like, listen, whether you're a Gentile and never had the law, you still perish. You just don't know you're a sinner. Then he says, then if you're a Jew and you have the law, you're under the law, under guilt, shame, and condemnation, and you perish anyway. And so he's like, sin is sin, regardless of which one you're sitting under, you perish because all have fallen short of the glory. Yeah. So it, it leaves you in this place where he's going like, I mean, in, let, me, let me read this to you. In chapter 2, he's, he's describing unbelief and its consequences. And then he says this, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse or justification. Every one of you who judges and condemns others for in passing judgment on another person, you condemn yourself. Because you who judge from a position of arrogance or self-righteousness are habitually practicing the very same things which you denounce. <laughs> Paul's like, stop it, church. Stop. No more. No more judging. No more condemning. No more focusing on sin. No more nitpicking. No more calling it out. No more. You can't do it. And this hits the, the perverted prosperity gospel right between the eyes because it's like, well, I got the blessing of God on me. I can do anything. I walk into that boardroom and do whatever I want. Nope. If anything happens in that boardroom, it's because the grace of God on my life. It's because his hand was on me and there's a purpose in that decision, which means he's going to get his glory. <laughs> the blessing of God is not on my life so that I can get the glory and put it on Instagram, AG2G, all glory to God. Thank God that he blessed me but I'm still living for myself, doing my own thing. Nope. <laughs> I was feeling so tender, now I'm fired up. I don't know what's going on. 
I just... Uh. <laughs> okay, listen to this. Romans chapter 1. So Paul, he int- introduces himself. He says, I'm Paul. I'm a bondservant. Let's start there. Hi, guys. I'm Connor. I'm a bondservant. I'm a bondservant of Christ, meaning I willingly give myself as a servant to whatever he wants. Imagine that's how we... Imagine that CEO walks into the boardroom and goes, Hi guys, my name's Connor. I'm a bondservant of Christ. So this is Paul. So he's already telling you from like sentence number one, I don't live for myself, I live for him. I serve him. If he says do this today, I do it. If he says don't do it tomorrow, I don't do it. I'm yielded, I'm abandoned, I'm given. He begins to describe this. I love this. There's lines in, in the first couple of verses that you need to go read this, study this in the week as we're unpacking this book. Um, he says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith, your trust and confidence in His power, wisdom and goodness is being cr- proclaimed in all the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by preaching the gospel of His Son is my witness as to how continuously I mention you in my prayers, always pleading that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last come to you. It's beautiful. This is Paul writing to the church. But then listen to this, verse 15. So for my part, I am ready and eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul's like, I hear there's a church in Rome. I haven't been there yet. I'm really excited to go there because I want to make sure that the pure gospel of grace is being preached in every church that's under the banner of Christ. And then he says this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is the gospel you believe and preach so scandalous that people look at you and think you should be ashamed? Can you see why grace is so wild? I've hardly even touched the surface of the fullness of the message of grace. And you just have to say a few one-liners and people come at you like, hey, you're preaching that sin's okay. I'm like, this sounds like something I should say I'm not ashamed of. Do I preach a gospel? Do I believe a gospel that people go, hey, you should be ashamed that you say that? I'm not ashamed of this. It's the best news ever. If, if the gospel that you believe and preach doesn't make you go, this is so scandalous, it, it makes people nervous, then, then you should question it. You should go like, if it's, because gospel means good news. Not nice news, not decent news, good news. It's good news. It should produce goodness in you. Like, Wow. So Paul's going, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says this, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Both springing from faith and leading to faith. (laughs) As it is written and forever remains written, the just and upright shall live by faith. Paul makes a statement. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me tell you this gospel. It's the power of salvation to those who believe, to the Jew and also to the Gentile. And then he says this, it's the righteousness of God revealed. And then he says, it comes from faith and then it leads you to faith. Nowhere in this gospel message that Paul preaches is there a get your act together, fix yourself, deal with your sin message. This is about right believing, not right living. Right living is the fruit of what you believe. We start the wrong side of the equation. We're we're teaching believers and going, hey, deal with this, discipline yourself, work harder, do this, change that. And, And we wonder why we don't see power because that's all you. 
That's all what you can do, what you can produce in your life, and you've missed the substance of what Jesus actually paid for, which is, hey, when I was hanging on the cross for you, what did you do? What did you actually do to, to fulfill what, this covenant that I've made with you? Nothing. In fact, you're the one who said crucify him. If you were standing in that crowd, you would have said the same thing. It was easier to relate to Barabbas than it was to relate to Jesus. Purity is offensive. And this is the beautiful thing. You will never find purity in and of yourself. Never. There's only one who's pure. There's only one who's righteous. And so he's the one. He's holy, set apart. Only one found worthy. Only one who can open the seal of the scroll. Revelation says this. So what are we talking about? There's one who's found worthy, and, and he's the only one who could fulfill God's desire for the people that are his. So he pays the ultimate price, does everything that's needed to be done, is raised from the dead, and you are raised with him by what? By works of the law? No, by faith. The whole thing is wrapped up in that one thing, only believe. That the power, of, the power of salvation is in this one thing, I believe. The full essence of everything Jesus paid for, the resurrection life of Jesus, is wrapped up into one simple thing, believe. And that's the best news you'll ever, your ears will ever hear. You don't have to come here today and go, well, I'm working on these things, and as soon as I get my act together, and as soon as I feel like I'm in a good place with God again, I can start to do what he's called me to do. No, he's saying only believe. See, God never, 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 never relates to you according to your sin. Okay, so Romans 1, we see this introduction. We see that Paul, he's, he's starting to say this, and then he begins to shift in Romans 4. Uh, it talks about Abraham and faith. And here's the thing. God called Abraham righteous before the law was even given. And he called Abraham righteous because of one simple thing. He believed me. <sighs> so let me say it like this. You're living a certain way and you feel stuck and, and ashamed and whatever. And God says, I say you're righteous. And the decision you make in that place is where everything lies. God says, I paid the price, you're righteous. And Abraham goes, I believe. And God says, you're righteous, you're my friend. This is the gospel. <laughs> See, the, the grace of God brings us to this place where it just, it's no longer about you and how well you think you're doing. And man, do we need this. The gospel brings you to a place where it's no longer about you and how well you think you're doing. The gospel is the fullness and finished work of Jesus in you. And the more you receive who he is, the more you'll see him in you. And I believe that, that the, the measure of maturity as we're leaning into this revelation is that we start to recognize no other but Christ in me and in the church. Can you imagine a community where the worst of the worst sinner can come into a community but we recognize no other but Christ? Did, did Christ pay any different a price for me than he did for the worst? What if I'm also the worst? Then we start to go, God, I recognize no other but Christ in your body. It's your house. It's your church. Do you know, I was studying the early church and 
especially the first thousand years. Do you know what the number one adjective that's brought up over and over again to describe the early church is? Compassion. And do you know how Christianity changed society? This is wild. I'm going to use an example that's a little, a little intense. But in the, in the Roman culture, they didn't value female lives as much as they valued males. And so there was times where if women had a daughter instead of a son, the father would say, discard the daughter. And the way they would discard the daughter is literally by taking them down to the dump, the trash heap, and throwing the babies away. This is history. Do you know what the Christians did? They would go sort through the trash to find the babies. And they would rescue the babies and raise them as their own. Adoption was happening way, 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 way back then where they were taking Roman baby girls who were being discarded because of a, a perverted, evil, and messed up perspective on life, and the Christians were saving them. And actually, uh, I can't remember the name of this emperor. He writes a letter, and he is offended by the charity of the Christians because he says this, they even help our orphans. He writes in his letter, he's so angry because he's like, they're not just taking care of themselves, they take care of our people when we do wrong to them. They're taking care of the poor in our community. They're taking care of the orphans in our community. They're taking responsibility for the mess of society. They're doing it. And there was no political movement. There was no Christians trying to be the next governor or the next emperor. They were just faithfully loving the one in front of them. What was the marking character or characteristic? Compassion. God's bringing the church back to a place of compassion. How can you have compassion if you're measuring each other's sin according to the law? Compassion doesn't come from that place. Compassion comes from the place of He was so gracious, so merciful, so loving, kind, so loving and kind to me that He saved my life. What a joy that I can be the hands and feet of Jesus to love the, the unlovely, to love the broken, to love the lost. I mean, just this is a side thing, and I'm not going to talk about this too long, but do you know that if, just every, if every Christian in South Africa just adopted one baby, we would solve the foster and adoption crisis in South Africa. We're 80-something percent Christian as a nation. Just think about that for a second. I don't even think there would be too many Christians for the crisis. That, that convicts us, right? Because it's like our compassion should lead us to a place where we are becoming change, not demanding it from a corrupt government. We become change. My hope is not in elections. My hope is in the gospel. Elections can come and go. Governments can come and go. But the church stays the same. And the church has been here through the ages. The church was in South Africa way before the ANC was. And that's not to nail the ANC. It's just to say, hey, why are we putting our hope in what change we can bring to a government when we can bring change to society every day just by living out love? Where is the caliber of Christian? And let me tell you, this caliber of, 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 or this nature of the Christian only comes from the fullness of the gospel. And I believe the reason we've lost it in the church is because we're not preaching the fullness of the gospel. But think about this. There, in the early church, people were being martyred and killed for the gospel every single day, and it was their joy. I'm trying to remember his name. I think it's Arrhenius. It was either him or there's one other. 
he gets arrested and, uh, and he gets, he's t- being taken to Rome and they're going to kill him by putting him into the Colosseum, releasing the lions in front of the thousands and letting the lions basically eat him alive in front of thousands of people. Okay? And so he's being transported by the Roman guard back to Rome where this is going to happen and he writes a letter. This blows me away. He writes a letter to the church that's praying for him. And this is what he writes. Please don't pray for my release. And he says, oh, how I long for the lions. And he says, pray that that my body broken would be like the body of Christ broken for his bride or for his church. The longing in this man's heart was that I'd be like Christ when the hour comes. Not that God would take me away from that hour. That caliber of faith, that, that measure of a person only comes from one thing. God is so good to me. He's done everything. I give him and owe him my life. And the beauty of the the fullness of the gospel is this. You might kill my body, but you can never kill me because my spirit is secure in the finished work of the cross, a covenant that he made that can never be broken by any man or woman. Meaning you can do what you want to my body, but you'll never take my Jesus from me. Dare I challenge us this morning to say this, are we settling for salaries? Are we settling for promotions and positions? Are we settling for comforts and materialism? My friend Randy Martinez says this, he says, it's not bad to have it, it's deadly to be attached to it. Think about that. It's not bad to have it. It's deadly to be attached to it. Are we settling? Are we, what are you living your life for? Because here's the thing. We've got to break this mentality that it's like, well, I go to a church that does these things. That's an institutional mentality of the church, and it's not the church that turned the world upside down. The church that turned the world upside down was we actually come together, because let me just say this. Some, some scholars say that the church in Antioch within uh, two or three years grew to over 100,000 people in the city. Now, don't take me as a fact. That's just what some scholars are saying. I'm going, how do you, like, in a persecuted environment, you can't get 100,000 people together on a field. It's like, there's the target, take out all the Christians. So they they couldn't even meet all together in one space. There must have been multiple gatherings. So here's the reality is, the church is not just about a Sunday service. This time that we come together is to get equipped and stirred up and fired up and encouraged. We sharpen one another, we worship, we minister to Jesus, we encounter the presence of God. And then we come from an overflow going, I am running with brothers and sisters who are all serving Jesus in my city and I can't wait to see the next one saved. I can't wait to see the next one healed. I can't wait to bring the gospel to my school, to my university, to my business, wherever I'm going. And yes, whether it costs me my job or not, what a joy. I'm not going to compromise on the gospel for the sake of a salary. The salary bows way before the gospel. The gospel is is done. It's finished. It's what I give my life to. If something has to bow, it's not going to be what I'm living for. Can I say this? The smartest way for the enemy to take you out of what God's doing or his assignment and destiny in your life is to give you other passions. He's so smart. 
Let me just give you something else that you're passionate about, that you love and gives you some sense of immediate gratification and fulfillment. Because this one costs you. But this one here might cost you for a second, but it gives you instant gratification and it becomes a passion that you think you're finding purpose in and it's leading you further and further away from the assignment and call of God on your life. Because he's smart. He's not going to distract you with something that doesn't seem important to you. I'm watching this happen right now. I feel the wrestle even in our own hearts. I'm watching it happen in the world. I'm watching it happen around me. Christians getting distracted by other things, thinking, but it's okay for me to, like, this is what I'm giving myself to, and church is a part of my life. Church is just a part of my life. God, forgive us. He has great news, but (laughs) think about this for a second. Our language as Christians in the West is changing. I'm really passionate about church, like I'm passionate about multiple different things, like I'm passionate about Manchester United. I'm loyal to them once a week. I watch their game. I check their resources on their website and update myself on what's going on. And I'm treating the church like my favorite football club. I promise you every single one of us can find something in our lives where where you know exactly what I'm talking about. We do this with work. We do this even with our assignments. God has called me to minister to the poor, so I can't gather with the church on Sundays because I've got to be out on the streets ministering to the poor. All you've done is made this about you and allowed your passion for the assignment to become more than your passion for Him. And so when we say, when we sing songs like, there's no other God but Him, let every other idol fall, you know, we're picturing like, yes, God, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, yes, let them all fall, and amen to that. But what about self? And we all need this, man. I'm not preaching at you. This is, this is me with Jesus going, Lord. Like, we all need this going, God, don't let me become more passionate about things that actually don't count. Can I enjoy that stuff? Yes. Of course I can enjoy things. God wants me to enjoy things. And like I said, it's not bad to have it. It's, bad to be atta- it's deadly to be attached to it. But I promise you, you can look at your life right now and go, what am I living for? Because attending church on a Sunday is not enough. It's not enough, not because there's some sort of measure. It's not enough for you. Your heart knows it's not enough. You're not satisfied in your spiritual walk if all it looks like is Sunday morning. If you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus every day, regardless of your sin and your mistakes and your junk and your stress and whatever it is, who cares? Put that aside and just say this. He wants to meet with me every day. And if I don't have that, if I'm not living for his dream, I will never be satisfied, I will never be fulfilled, and I will chase one thing after the next thing after the next thing, and every couple of years you go through a new season. And then when you get bored at church because you become so uh, self-focused and so introspective that you even start to come to church for yourself, and the moment your pastor gets up and says, it's not about you, it's about somebody else, you go, you know what, I think it's actually the end of my season at 24-7, it's time for me to go find another church. And the reason you're doing it is because you're selfish, introspective, and only living for you. And you've missed the dream of God. You've missed the gospel. And God's calling you back to say, hey, repentance is a joy. Come back to the dream. Come back to my heart. Let me set you on fire. We're going to live for something far more, far more than the things of this world. Let me just say this. We we don't preach this enough. And I include myself. And I say, God, help me. You're going to stand before Jesus one day. And he's not going to look at you and say, all right, let's pull out the list of all the sin. 
He's not going to do that. He's not going to say, right, let's do, let's, here, here we go. Welcome to my office. Take a seat. You ready? 80-something years of sin. You forgot to ask for forgiveness for this one. That means not such a big house in heaven. This is the gospel we've been taught and believe and preach for. So This is not what's going to happen, but you will stand before him. And can I tell you, you're going to stand before Jesus one day and look in his eyes and you're not going to see anything to do with your sin. It's not even going to be in the conversation because his blood was enough. His blood was enough. His sacrifice was enough. But you'll look into his eyes and this is what you'll see. The dream of heaven alive. And you'll go, did I give my life for that dream? Did I burn for what he burned for? And let me tell you, you will be so grateful that you, you gave up all the worldly stuff for that one thing in that moment. And yes, it cost you while you're on the earth, but this life on the earth is but a glimpse. It's just, it's a moment. You blink and you're in eternity. I don't want to get to Jesus and say, Lord, like I, I came to church, I paid my tithe, and I even went to Bible study once or twice a month. And look what we did. We built this empire of a business. I stayed healthy. I, I looked after the people in my life. I made sure my kids had private education. I did all this stuff. And Jesus is like, I'm not even looking at that. Did you learn to love? Did you partner and co-labor with me to see every tribe, every tongue, every nation come to know Jesus? Did you look for the unlovely? Did you look for the one that everyone looked over? Did you find the broken one and say, come, come home to a God who saved me. He'll save you. Were you able to say no to the, 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 all the cash and the money and the stuff? Were you able to say no for the cost of one thing that Jesus would have his reward? And I want to look Jesus in the eyes and see the dream of God and go, that's the dream in my heart. And yes, God, I didn't get it right. And I made mistakes and we, we messed up and we did stuff. With it. And God, but my heart was set after you. That's David. David is this king. Who's, he comes in as king and he's got to lead a nation. And I'm like, the guy, he's probably like, I don't know what to do. I was a shepherd boy and then a soldier and now I'm a king. So he goes, you know what we're going to do? Presents. Like he, his council probably came around him and they were like, David, listen, the nation's actually in distress. Like there's some serious things we've got to deal with. This is a mess, David. And David goes, just stop. Everyone just, where's the ark? Oh, we left it in a field years ago. And David's like, get it. And David still doesn't even know what he's doing. He brings it wrongly. And Uzzah dies and David's distraught. And he's like, God, I don't understand you. Like David is like you and me. He's just got one desire. He's going, God, I saw something. I beheld some pattern that you have in heaven. And I want to see it on the earth. And so he, he freaks out. He's like, Uzzah died and it's my fault. And, and God, I don't understand you and I'm confused. And so put it with Obed-Edom. And for three months, Obed-Edom's house is blessed and the gospel's just marking Obed-Edom in favor and blessing and abundance. And David's like, hey, we need that. Like the kingdom of God without, or the kingdom of Israel without that is just a normal kingdom. There's, there's nothing different about us. We need that. And so he finds a way. By yielding to the Lord's heart and saying, okay, God, let me ask the right questions. What do you want? Oh, you want it on the shoulders of the Levites. Okay, God, now we're going to do this your way. And guess what? It's going to be unnecessarily costly because we're going to have to slaughter a bull every six steps. Did you ever think about the cost? 
It's like, Lord, you, sorry, hold on a second. Just to get it from Obed-Edom's house to Mount Zion, you want us to spend tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of rand on cows. Why, God? That makes absolutely no sense. Because I want to, David. Yes, Lord. And so he brings it in. Now, I'm using David as an example. I'm saying God calls David a man after his own heart. David's the guy who stuffed up royally. Like, he just, he just he made so many mistakes. And yet God's like, I love this man. Why? Because it was never about the mistakes. It was what David was in pursuit of, what he was giving his life to. Why am I saying this? We have the potential as the people of God to be a part right now of the greatest move the earth has ever seen. And guess where it starts? You, tomorrow morning, in your sphere of influence. And you have this joy of waking up tomorrow, coming before Jesus and saying, Lord, I have nothing. And my prayer is that when I meet people today, they're not going to just get Connor. But Jesus, that you, you've given me everything. You've paid the highest price through the Holy Spirit that I receive everything that I need. He's given me everything that pertains to life and godliness in Him, right? So if He's given me everything, then the life that I'm called to live only comes from the overflow of what He's given me. Meaning there's nothing that can disqualify you except you rejecting what you're called to. So like my heart's cries, I'm going, man, I'm in this space with the Lord. I'm going, God, I don't want to do this if this isn't all in, full out for you, your dream. We're going to give ourselves to this thing as a church. And, and you're going to build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And thank God that you're building it because I don't want to take on the gates of hell. I just want to be riding behind Jesus. Because he's the one who opens his mouth and a sword comes out and wipes out the enemy. I want to ride with the king. And I want to say to you, I'm pleading with you from my heart, not, not because, please hear me, not because any of this is beneficial to what 24-7 church looks like, because 24-7 church exists for the kingdom of God. Are you with me? But I'm pleading with us. I'm saying, hey, your yes to Jesus is so valuable. Don't give it to anything other where it doesn't belong. Give it to him. Your yes to Jesus is so precious to him. You are his. Your life is not your own. You belong to Him. Give Him your yes. And, and this is my prayer. I used to pray this when I was a teenager. I used to say, Lord, silence the echoes of my flesh and let the roar of your Holy Spirit become the yes within me. It's written in my Bible. I used to say, God, when I don't know how to say yes to your dream, when I don't know how to say yes to you saying go to this place or love that person or pray for that person or forgive that person, or, when, when you say these things to me, God, when I don't know how to say yes, let the roar of the Holy Spirit become the yes inside of me. And maybe it's going to start with a whisper, but let it turn into a roar that your yes is my yes. That I, even if I don't know how to say yes, I just know how to yield. And I'll never forget being in India and having this dream about that region and the Lord saying to me, I've called you to the deepest, darkest places where nobody wants to go. Like that's not exciting. That's not the word that you want to get from the Lord. And I remember he said this to me. He said, it's going to take a yielded yes. He didn't just say yes. He said, it's going to take a yielded yes. And I remember just, it's been years of processing this and going, 
Oh, you're saying when I yield, you become the yes within me. That I don't know how to say yes to some of the things you're going to ask me to do. I don't know how to say yes to nations that are just scary and difficult and people who are intimidating and aggressive. Like to say yes to the Muslim nation, to the Islamic nations, it has to be him because they're angry and they're rude and mean and they do horrible things. They're, they're extremists I'm talking about. And, and God's going like, well, Paul was an extremist who got radically saved. That's how much God loves. He's, his compassion for people. Heidi Baker says it like this, you have no authority where you have no love. You have no authority where you have no love. I feel, I mean, this is, guys, I'm, I am so preaching to my heart right now, but I just feel the Lord going like, stop, stop the right and wrong thing, just stop. Come to the fullness of the gospel. Come to relationship and intimacy with me and let everything flow from that place. What you will see is a supernatural God in a supernatural people. And my heart for 24-7 is like, God, this isn't about filling this room or about looking successful or about having an awesome media page. We've got to just be so careful that we don't get caught up in trying to look successful. And that's for your life. Stop it. Stop trying to look successful. It means nothing. But the gospel, the dream of God, the plans and purposes of heaven for his church on the earth, it's everything. And can I just say this this morning in the, the sound check, I was just walking around praying and I kept feeling the Lord saying, Connor, I'm going to do something in my church, the ones that set themselves apart for me, where there will be no man or woman who becomes the face of something or, or who, who gets recognition for something. In fact, I believe that the church that's emerging in this hour, you'll walk into buildings like this and not know who leads it. I believe that with all my heart. God's building it and he's on the journey of taking us to that. But I believe we're going to come to a place where the church is going to be so vibrant and dynamic and full of the nature of Jesus that people walk in and go, this, this place is incredible. These people are phenomenal. The love and the compassion, it's home. There's place for everyone at the table. It's safe. Wow. Stop there. My heart is stirred because I'm looking at the beginning of the church and I'm going, Lord, if that's how we started. How beautiful and incredible and powerful is the way we're going to finish? Do you have a vision for that? Like, let me ask you that question. If you're looking for vision for your life, who gives a tortoise if you are the, the you know, multi-billionaire, millionaire, whatever of, of so many different, who cares? Because when it all ends, none of that stuff matters. And if you are that, thank God that he actually used you for that, for the kingdom. Because if it's not for the kingdom, it's not his. Just because something's good doesn't mean it's from God. 
Sometimes we're calling things blessings that are actually distractions. Because sometimes the enemy comes and goes, okay, I know, I know how to get to your heart. Let me just give you money. And I give you money and you're just distracted from what I've called you to do. But when your heart is surrendered to Jesus, he can entrust you with millions for the kingdom and then tomorrow you might not have anything, but you're okay. You weren't living for the millions, you were living for him. You're steadfast, faithful, set apart, living for the dream of God. And so if you need vision for your life, what's the vision of how God's going to do this thing? Because let me tell you, I'm not wasting my time in a sense that like, we're not, we're not talking about a story here. This isn't like a cool story that's a nice thing to add to your life, makes you feel better about your week, get a good high five on the way into church, good hug on the way out, feel a bit better, get to the next week, motivational. It's, that is not the church that Jesus is building. Like we're in, guys. <laughs> we're in it. This is it. This is the greatest hour for the church. This is our time for the people of God to say, you know what? Thank God for the purity of the gospel. Thank God for the potent, radical, scandalous, outrageous good news of the finished work of the cross. It is doing so much in my heart. It's producing such love in me that I can't wait to love people. I can't wait to love people the way Jesus loves me so that they can get a taste of heaven, so they know where home is. It's him. Could it be that in our lifetime and in our children and our children's children's lifetime, I don't know how much further we get than that, but let's just say that we actually see the bride of Christ arise and shine in the midst of deep darkness, that while the world is falling apart, there is a remnant, a people for his own possession that are shining with the radiance of the sun. Oh, the brilliance of the sun, shining as the one. We're singing about this. Could it be that that's actually happening and going to happen and that we're going to see the fulfillment of the Great Commission on the earth? That the gospel actually is going to reach every corner of the earth? That God's actually raising up a people who are so given to the presence of God that in his presence they're commissioned to take the message and the good news and the, the revelation of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And I, I think we need to almost make these commitments to ourselves and say, God, I won't stop until the whole earth sings. Because let me just say this to you, and I'm going to end here. Preaching provokes worship. And if it's not provoking worship, we've missed something. I remember the Lord said this to me early on when I was learning how to preach. He said this to me. He said, I'm still learning how to preach, by the way. But uh, he said this to me. He said, teaching invites, but presence transforms. Like today, I, I've, I've settled this on my heart. I don't expect you to walk out and remember what I said. But I'm praying that in the words, that the Spirit of God began to invite your heart to presence that he began to invite your heart to the place of intimacy where you can abandon everything else and be with him. And from that place, he will make you everything he desires. So I want to set you free this morning and just say we're going to tackle a book that is a very powerful statement of the gospel we believe. And in here is the nations. And in here is uh, dealing with, with unbelief and all those things and, and a true perspective of the fullness of Jesus. And so I want to say to you today, every ungodly, legalistic burden of right and wrong, shake it off, it's not yours. You are not called to measure up, you're called to surrender. Take off every bit of guilt, shame, and condemnation. The gospel has nothing to do with those things. If you're feeling conviction, it's because of an invitation. Conviction takes you into fullness, it doesn't chase you away. That's condemnation. 
We must be clear on the difference between those two things. If you're sitting here today and you're feeling conviction, conviction invites you. It's like, yes, I want that. Condemnation goes, whoa, I'm a mess. I shouldn't even be here. What's going on? The Father never partners with guilt, shame, and condemnation. It's not the gospel. It's the product of the law. So my prayer is that somehow, and maybe I'll pray it in a second, but that somehow in this, that all God's doing is He's just stirring up passion for Him. Receptivity in our hearts to receive the gospel, to say, God, you're really that good. You really said it. I actually believe it. You're going to do it. Amen. I want to ride with the King. Like Jesus, you take the lead. We're with you. We're going to follow you. We're just going to follow you. We're going to trust Jesus. I'm not going to focus. I'm trying to fix it. I'm just going to love you and follow you and trust you. Your leadership is perfect. You're the one with the plan for my life. You're the one who fulfills his promises. Amen. Can I say something? This is just for maybe a handful of people in the room. The hardship you're going through right now, you'll never have again. Make it count. Make it count. Let him, let him get worship in the midst of brokenness. Just love him. God, I don't know, maybe you, can, you might be in a situation and go, hey, I, this situation is even my fault. You'll never have that opportunity again to say, God, I love you. It's not about that. You're not looking at my situation and going, because you did this, should have done that, could have done this better. Those words never come out of the mouth of Jesus. He, he's never saying that. So we just got to come to a place and go, God, in my life, in every season and whatever I'm going through, that you would be glorified. I just want to love you. I just want to love you. I just want to minister to you. Amen. Won't you stand? Some of you might be sitting here today and going like, you know what, I need to go home and uh, sit with my family and let's do a bit of a calculation here on where we've missed things because, man, that was convicting or whatever. You're sitting there like, okay, we need to reassess some stuff. Well, that's, that's not what I'm after. You know what I'd, I'd love today for my, for my life, for your life? Let's run and be intimate with Jesus. Just go be with him. He loves us. Are you with me? So Holy Spirit, lift your hands. Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to first just say if there's anything I've said this morning that's not in your heart, I'm asking that it would be forgotten. I mean that, Lord. But everything that's your heart and everything that you would say if you were standing in this room, Lord, I'm asking that it would take deep root in our hearts to produce the fruit of the gospel. Jesus, we, we just say we love you. And we just want our lives to be lived for your dream. God, I'm asking that you would Help us not to be a sin-conscious people, but to be Christ-conscious, to see the beauty of Jesus and to simply run after you. What are we going to give our lives to? We're going to give it to the dream of God. And so, Lord, we just say thank you that this house is called 24-7 for a reason. This isn't just a Sunday thing. We're a people given to your heart 24-7 every day, God. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm, just, I'm asking that you would encourage 24-7 church this morning. You would encourage every heart here that, that the grace of God would 
power wash us of every lie we've believed from the enemy. And I, I just say, God, thank you that the accuser has no place in this house. That the accuser has no place in this house. That insecurity cannot land in this house. God, I thank you that we're free from all the lies. That we're given to truth. We're given to your heart. We're given to you. And what that means is you are doing it. And so we yield and we love you. Jesus, I bless every person in this room. Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm asking for the blood of Jesus over our hearts and our minds that you would protect us, God. Protect us from any way that the enemy would try to bring legalism or manipulate our understanding of who we are in Jesus. God, thank you that we have the mind of Christ, that our hearts are given. We love you, we worship you, we exalt you today. Lord, I'm, I, I know that if there's people in this room that need healing in any way, God, thank you that you're so faithful. And so I release healing over this room over every physical body, over every mind and every heart. Jesus, I also just pray that we would never look to a man or a woman to receive an anointing or to, to, to live our Christian life through them, but we would be so given to the man, Jesus, and say, God, live it in and through me. You are the anointed one. Father, thank you for the love of God that holds us the love of God that binds us together in perfect harmony and peace. Thank you for one spirit, one mind as a church. And Jesus, I'm asking as we go from this place today, Lord, that as we fellowship with our families and with one another and as we go into this week, I'm asking, make us the church that you desire, that you're building, that you are preparing and have prepared. Make us a bride for your glory. Make us a body for your name. Make us a people for your presence. We bless you. We love you. And we honor you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Um, that's such a church thing to say. As I said, I was like, man, why do we do that? And everybody said, Amen. I love it. It's like a choir. Love you guys so much. If you need prayer, please come up. We'll, we'll pray for you. Our team would love to pray for you. But we honor you. We love you. Have a beautiful day. We'll see you in the week. Have coffees with each other. Bless each other. Minister. Encourage each other. And uh, looking forward to what God has ahead. Remember next week, no Sunday morning, Saturday night church. It's going to be awesome. Love you lots. Ciao.